Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. Join us this Sunday at one of our four campuses. Call times are at 9 and 11 a.m. at our Somerville and Remount campuses, 10 a.m. at our North Charleston campus, and 11 a.m. at our Monk's Corner campus. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Larry Burbacher. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit faithishere.org. All right, welcome to Faith Assembly today. So good to have you guys with us this morning. Take your Bibles out, turn to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7. We're in a series in the book of Romans. We are about halfway through, and I want to tell you this morning's chapter is one of the most challenging and difficult to understand in the Word of God. So we're going to try to break it down for you today. Romans chapter 7, an incredible chapter. In fact, If you want to put underneath on your notes, put underneath creating contrast, put self-portrait down there. Self-portrait. Because what Paul is doing here is he is giving us a portrait of himself. And uh, the picture he paints is not very pretty. And it's a picture that I think every one of us struggle with on some level or another. So let's stand together and read God's word today. Self-portrait, we'll start with verse number 14. And we all deal with this same kind of... I mean, we feel it. And when you hear these words, you're going to say, man, that's me. I'm there. I'm right there. And we know what it's like. And we know what Paul's describing. And so we'll begin with verse 14 this morning as we look at it together. By the way, come tonight, 6 o'clock if you can. Going to be a great night of fellowship just for the whole family together. Plenty of food. Frisbee's flying. We have a couple jump capsules set up for the kids. And, uh, and uh, the bands will be playing from all the campuses. It'll just be a great fun night, a celebration tonight. Uh, Let's begin with verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, it's evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if we do, if we... Do what I do not want to do. It is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me. Jump down to verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Let us pray. Father, we love you so much today. We are just thankful for your amazing grace. Because we know the bottom line is we're all wretches and we need you and we can't do a thing without you. And so I pray your grace will come down today and permeate this place with your presence and and make us aware of our our need for you. And we love you so much and we thank you for what you're going to do and we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Turn to someone and tell them I am a wretched man or woman and then you may be seated. Vincent Van Gogh was an artistic genius. His paintings today sell for hundreds of millions of dollars. He is just one of these famous 
Uh, everybody's heard of Vincent van Gogh from the Netherlands. During his life, though, he was a poster boy for tortured and starving artists. It's amazing that during his entire lifetime, he only sold one painting. He, uh, at one point in his career, he moved in with Paul Gauguin, who was also a painter, and they shared a studio, and they shared a, a house, and they worked there for two months. Two months into this kind of uh, working relationship together in this home they shared, Van Gogh went crazy. He went off. He went nuts. And so on December 23rd, 1888, in a fit of rage, he pulled his knife out and he he threatens his friend, Paul Gauguin, to kill him. And, And all of a sudden, he does something really crazy and really weird. Instead of taking the knife to his friend, he takes the knife and he cuts his own ear off. That's a nut. That's a a loony guy right there. Afterwards, he allegedly wrapped up the ear and gave it to a prostitute at a nearby brothel. Following that incident, Van Gogh was hospitalized in Arles and checked himself into a mental institution where he stayed for a year. And yet it was in this mental institution during this time he had some of his uh, greatest works of art were produced. And so he would go from lunacy and craziness to incredible artistic genius. And he'd vacillate back and forth. He checked himself out, moved to a place near, near Paris, France, uh, and he was there for two months uh, until he was totally tortured by despair and by loneliness. And on July the 27th, 1890, he shot himself and died two days later at age 37. It's a pretty sad story, isn't it? Pretty demented mind. Now, as far as we know, the Apostle Paul never painted any portraits never painted any pictures whatsoever, but he takes his pen and ink and he begins to write the words that we have now in the book of Romans and he begins to develop his own self-portrait. You saw a couple of Van Gogh's self-portraits, one before the ear and one after the ear is cut off. Well, now Paul is gonna write Romans chapter seven and the first frame of Paul's artistry, he, he shows the depravity of man. And so you have chapters one, two, and three and it shows us that we are all sinful, we are all lost, we can't save ourselves, no matter what the case may be and so he shows us that the, the next frame he shows us that a justified sinner and you get to chapter the end of chapter three chapter four chapter five uh, and all of a sudden you see that we are now freed from that grip of sin uh, I am no longer bound by sin uh, and I and he can barely contain the joy and so you see that portrait in chapters four and five The next portrait he begins to show is that in chapter 6. And and Pastor Craig eloquently showed us last week of of the victorious life that I am now dead to sin and am I alive to Christ Jesus. The old man's been buried with Christ uh, and I am raised to walk with him in newness of life uh, and we can all celebrate together. And then all of a sudden in chapter 7, Paul begins to take a radical change and a radical turn from the language of chapter 6. He shows a dark picture there, a man who is sad, he is exhausted, he's defeated, uh, and you see in Paul's self-portrait, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? An amazing picture. Romans chapter 7, Paul uses the personal pronoun I 30 different times. I, I, 
I, I. So this is really the heart of his self-portrait. Now, how many have your cell phones with you today? Take them out. Everybody take your cell phone out. This is the generation of the selfie. So when everybody take your phone out, and I want you to hold it out like this, that you know how to do it. Some of the old, old guys here don't know how. Don't know how to push the right button. You'll mess it up. But I want you to take, and everybody right now, I want you wherever you're at, all across the building, you got your, you got your cameras out? I want you to take a selfie right now. I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. Uh, I'm one of those old, old guys who can't figure these things out. Take a selfie and then take a moment and text it to your buddies and friends and say, I'm in church this morning, where are you? (laughs) And what we have in Romans chapter 7 is Paul's selfie. I, 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 I. And so you see this very, very clearly coming out. And and so we wonder why, after escaping the tyranny of sin in chapter 6, does the next portrait of the Apostle Paul show a suffering, afflicted, miserable man that says, O wretched man that I am. Now there's another key word that is central in understanding Romans chapter 7, and it's the word law. Everybody say law. Law. The law. If the word I is used 30 times, the word law is used 35 times in Romans chapter 7. And so the key to understanding Romans 7 is to understand the relationship of the I and the law. And you put those two together and you begin to figure out what that chapter is really all about. So let's dig in. If you have your outlines, they're on the back of your bulletins. Follow along with me if you would. Number one, first of all, we are free from the law. And Paul is going to declare that right out of the gate. He says that we're dead to sin in chapter 6. Now he says in chapter 7, we are now free from the law. So let's read it together. Verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, If she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also die to the law, though the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who raised from the dead, in order that we might bear the fruit of God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit unto death. But now, by dying to what's what's bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. They asked Billy Graham's wife on one occasion if she ever considered divorce. To this which she responded, never divorce. I've thought about murder many times. (laughs) Paul uses an illustration of marriage. And it's basically this. As long as you make a covenant, a vow, you are bound to that person for life. Married for life. But he says when one of the spouse dies in the relationship, you are now free to remarry. Okay? 
Now, that's Paul's language, Paul's illustration. There are three key elements to the story here. There is the husband, there is the wife, and there is the law. The marriage document, the marriage law. There are those three ingredients all involved in this illustration that he uses. Now, here's what you do. The mistake you make is if you cast the law in the role of the husband. He's not talking about the law dying. In fact, he will later in the chapter say the law is good, it is righteous, it is holy, it is just. There's nothing wrong with the law. Don't look at the law as some kind of autocratic ruler over top of your life, and you finally say, oh, finally, the law law's dead, and I can do what I want to. He doesn't say the law dies. He says if your husband dies, and in this case, the husband he's talking about is that old sinful nature. And he says when that old sinful nature dies with the Lord Jesus Christ, I am now free to live with a new husband, a new master, and that is the law of the Spirit. He's not talking about the death of the law. The law is always good. But the believer dies. And when the believer dies, the obligation to sin also dies. I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about the old nature, the old flesh, the old man has been crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I identify with what he did, I die with him, and with him dies that old fleshly nature. And so in verse number six, he says it, our death releases us from the law. Sin condemns, but now I'm free, so my relationship to the law has changed. I've moved on. Got it? The second thing he tells us is the purpose of the law. You say, well, why is the law so important? There's a couple of reasons. The first is found in verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would have not known what sin was except through the law. For I would not know what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. So the first thing the law does, it exposes our sin. It shows us that we are sinners. And it exposes that sin, and when it exposes my sin, I see how guilty I am. It's at that point I'm able to repent and say, God, I need your help. God, forgive me. God, cleanse me. God, come into my life. If I had a canvas up here, and it was totally black, and, and on that canvas I took a, a black paint, and I wrote on that canvas, sin. You, when that paint dried, it might glisten for a little while, but when that paint dried, you'd never be able to see that sin against the black background of the world. But if I took that, a different canvas that was a white canvas and a white background, and I took that same black ink and I wrote sin all over that canvas, you would see it very boldly and very pronounced. The law is that white background. That law is that white canvas. That, white, that law shows me how black my sin really is. You see, I look pretty good up against the world. I'm not too bad compared to everybody else because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and I just kind of blend in. But up against the righteousness of God's holy and pure law, I see exactly how black my sin can be. My sin is. The law exposes how bad our sins, and he says in verse seven, is the law sin? He says, certainly not. That's not the problem. The problem is my old stinky flesh. 
The law only exposes our sin. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way for you. Not too long ago, not too many years ago, if a person had cancer in their body, often they would not realize it until the symptoms began to manifest themselves. At which time they would go to the doctor, and the doctor would look at them and say, I've got bad news, and it's already spread throughout your body, and we don't give you a lot of hope. But there was a machine that was invented called a magnetic resonance imaging machine. We know it as the MRI. And so now you can go in and get an MRI done, and you can get much earlier diagnosis of that cancer, and so it literally penetrates through the flesh, uh, and it quickly and accurately uh, details every image of your body. So when those images are taken, you can locate the cancerous tumor, and often you can get to it and take it out and remove it or treat it before it's too late. The MRI. Now listen to me. If the MRI came up and said, you've got a cancerous tumor in your body, you wouldn't get mad at the MRI machine. Boy, I hate that machine. Never does anything but show bad, give me bad news. No, that'd be ridiculous. You wouldn't get mad at the machine. The law is like the MRI machine. It penetrates beyond the flesh and goes deep to the heart of our problem. And it shows me that I am sinful. The MRI shows me that I'm dying from a disease called sin. The law showed me that that I loved my sin and I was living like a dead man and I was underneath a death sentence. God's law is the MRI machine. It is simply a diagnostic tool that tells me I have a disease. But the good news is there's a cure today. Hallelujah. So the law exposes my sin. It creates that contrast, creating contrast. But the second thing the law does is the purpose of the law, not only does it reveal my sin, it reveals my sinfulness. Let's pick it up with verse number eight, and this is where it really gets intense here. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came to when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Now, now, now follow me here. Not only does the law reveal sin, but the law primes the pump of sin. The law makes me want to sin more. Wow. There's something about human nature that when we know something is off limits, the more we want to do it. Right? I used the illustration a couple of weeks ago about the, the wet paint sign and wanting that when you, as soon as you see that sign, what do you want to do? You want to touch the wall. Right? There's something about the law that it reveals our utter moral bankruptcy. In, in, in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah has a vision. And it's a vision of the glory of God. It's the white canvas. It's the white background that I was describing. It is a glorious vision of God's majesty in the temple. And what does he do when he has this glorious vision of God? What does he say? 
Oh, wretched man that I am, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And so when he gets this revelation of the glory of God, he's also faced with his own sinfulness in his own life. It's that contrast. Paul's describing his own life in Romans 7. And the deeper into the law Paul got, he says the larger sin sprang to life inside of me. I didn't even know about covetousness, but I'll tell you what, when the law told me don't covet, I did it more and more and more. It was a problem that I had to deal with in my own life. Sin came to life and Paul died. Now, you could take Paul's life here, or you could go back to Adam. Remember Adam in the garden? Talked about him a couple of weeks ago. What happens? Adam's in the garden. He's having a great time. He and God are walking along, and as soon as God marks a tree in the middle of a garden, and he says, don't eat this tree. Paul may have never eaten from that tree. He may have eaten from everything else in the garden. He may have never even got to that tree. But as soon as the sign went on that tree, do not eat. Sin sprung to life in Adam, and what does he do? Adam and Eve eat from the tree. So the law not only exposes our sin, it shows us how really sinful our lousy, stinking nature is. Don't blame the commandment, don't blame the law, blame our sinful nature. He calls it the flesh. When I'm declared dead to the law of sin and death, though, I'm put out of my misery, out of my guilt, out of my shame, because I know I can be made alive again in Christ Jesus. So Colossians 2.13 puts it this way. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Great news. Now, what, what this Romans this Roman 7, 14 and on, the, the text I read to you, this shows us the third thing, and that is our struggle with sin. There's this ongoing struggle with the sin nature, an ongoing struggle with the sin nature. While the Christian life is victory, victory is never won without conflict. We sing victory in Jesus, but along the line, there's a lot of battle scars, right? A lot of conflict, a lot of struggles. The ability to unite the hand, what I want to do with the heart, or what I do, the hand, what I do, that's my actions, with the heart, what I really want to do, what my desire is, is often a dilemma, right? The, Paul says, what I want to do, I can't find myself doing. How many resolutions have we made only to break them a few weeks later, a few days later? They don't last all that long. And the things you don't want to do, you find yourself doing. Your heart says, no, don't do that. It's not good for you. Uh, but there's something inside that you do it. How do you solve this dilemma? How am I dead to sin in Christ Jesus, and yet my sin nature is stirred up all the time. How do we resolve the two issues? It's a part of what I've taught on before. Listen to me. It's the already and not yet. Now follow me here. The kingdom of God has already come in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Already in him, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Already in him, I am cleansed by the blood of the lamb. I stand pure and holy and faultless before the throne of grace. Already, right now, in Jesus Christ. But the not yet is, we're not in heaven yet. His kingdom doesn't cover the whole earth yet. And so I'm already in Christ Jesus. I'm not yet perfect in Christ Jesus. We're now free from sin, but I still wrestle with that sin nature. There is still a battle going on. He describes it here. He describes it in Galatians. He calls it my flesh wars against my spirit. Uh, And as long as I am on that earth, this earth, uh, my flesh will always be in battle with my spirit. Right now. One day the conflict will cease But for now, Paul says, we are rescued moment by moment by our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Who shall rescue me from the body of this death? Uh, Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a moment by moment that I walk in his victory. I walk in his rescuing. uh, I walk in his freedom. Moment by moment. The coming of the kingdom came through the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came to the earth, he invaded the kingdom of darkness. Christ comes in. He brings in a new kingdom. The, uh, John the Baptist said, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, Jesus Christ said, The kingdom of God is even now, even in your midst. Uh, the kingdom of G- God came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but when he came, he invaded the kingdom of darkness. And right now, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness are in bitter conflict. You don't believe it. Look around. Look at our government, look at the church, look at the persecution, look at what's going on in the Supreme Court, look around our land. There is a clash, there is a battle that we are right in the middle of. It's the kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. If you don't know that and believe that, your head's head's been in the sand. You're 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 from another planet. The kingdoms are in conflict until the kingdom of God is fully consummated when it says, and the glory of the Lord covers the entire earth. Until then, there is this tension inside of us. It's the pull of sin and it's constant assault on the members of our body. While at the same time, in my inner man, I delight in God's laws. In my flesh, I find myself doing what I don't want to do. What a believer is in Christ's grace, positionally, he is dead to sin. But it's not always true in experience. Positionally, I am dead to sin. I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. I am the full of his righteousness and his sanctification, and his holiness. I am sanctified by the blood of the Lamb right now, but I don't always live that out in my experience. The Christian still looks for the redemption of his body, and when we get to chapter 8 next week, he says, I'm looking for the, we are saved in hope. I'm looking for that hope, uh, the redemption of my bodies, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now listen, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm laying it out there. This is chapter 7. Chapter 8, if the law is the key word in chapter 7, the spirit is the key word in chapter 8. And we'll unpackage that more fully for you next Sunday as well. 
The Christian still looks for the redemption of his body. We do not achieve on this earth perfection that we will enjoy in heaven when there will be no more sin. Paul describes this fleshly pull. In verse 17, he says, the sin dwelling within me. While I've received the new nature when, he believed in, when I believe in Christ Jesus, the body, the flesh, seems to have a mind all of its own. It's out of control. The flesh is that old sinful nature, and it wants to continue life as long as it can inside of me. It does not want to die, and it doesn't go down easily. In 1886, Scottish Arthur Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a very disturbing novel called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Anybody ever read that or see the movies? I think we've all seen the movies at some time or another. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll was a respected physician. He was a medical researcher. He was a very good man. Mr. Hyde was Dr. Jekyll gone awry. His experiences went nuts, his experiments. And so he experimented in the scientific lab, and they went nuts, uh, and all of a sudden it released a murderous savage that was on the inside that had been lurking in the shadows of his gentle public demeanor. The bizarre tale contains a truth that Paul alludes to in Romans chapter 7. We see ourselves as Dr. Jekyll. We see ourselves as a good, moral, nice guy. And we just hope we can keep Mr. Hyde locked up. And he doesn't break out. And no one really sees him. Right? You guys are much better than I am. I'm telling you. I'm describing myself here. You guys may have it all together. We want to keep Mr. Hyde hidden. And we want to portray Dr. Jekyll. Mark Twain makes this statement. Everyone is a moon and has a dark side which he never shows to anybody. We keep him locked up. We keep the dark side hidden. We're afraid he's going to break out. And this is what Paul's describing. He says, the good things I want to do, I don't do. What's wrong with me? I can't get it together. The things I don't want to do, I am drawn to that. And I find myself doing it. And, and that Mr. Hyde keeps coming out. And I swear. And I do something wrong. And I get angry at somebody. And I honk on the freeway. And I fuss with my wife. And I look at women and I lust. And the things I know are wrong, I'm doing. And I'm saying, oh, wretched man that I am. Am I the only one that struggles with this kind of stuff? Oh, wretched man that I am. The theme of Romans, though, is the gospel. And in chapter 1, he says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is all about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the dark side of the moon is the depravity of man, it forces me to cry out for a Savior. And so this is what Paul does when he gets to the end of the chapter. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And then he gives us the answer. Thanks be to God through my Lord Jesus Christ. He's my deliverer. He sets me free. He gives me victory. He's my hope. 
He's my helper because I'm really rotten on the inside. You guys getting it? So it leads me to the fourth point, deliverance from the law. Look at verses 24 and 25. What a wretched man that I am who will rescue me from the body of this dead. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. He uses a word there. The word's wretched. Not a word we use a lot in our language today. It's kind of a word that's kind of gone by the wayside, although I think we know what the word means, wretched. Wretched, we don't like to say that word. It means suffering, afflicted, and miserable. It's a, it was a slang term when they would take and you would have a towel that was soaked with water and you would twist it and twist it and twist it. You would wrench all the water out. It comes kind of come from that idea, wrenching the water out of the towel or out of the rag and you just twist and twist till you get every last drop of water out. You twist in opposite directions. Paul says, I'm wretched. The life has been squeezed out of me. Anybody ever here watch the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight? You know, you, you get the image of, of the Apostle Paul. He's there, he's been a boxer, and he's been in the ring going for 15 rounds, uh, and he is pummeled, and his eyes are, are all blood, uh, bloody, nose, uh, his nose is all crooked and all messed up. He is weak, he is sweating, he's perspiring, uh, and he comes out in the middle of the ring, and he has just been defeated, he's just been knocked down, he's been on the canvas more than he's been up, uh, and they declare the winner, and it's somebody else. His hand's never raised, and yet he's got the scars of battle to prove he's been in warfare. Paul says, I am wretched, and he hears the announcer announce the defeat. Wretched man, unable to defeat the flesh. By means of his own flesh, we can never defeat our flesh. The law only proves we stand condemned. And so we cry out, who will deliver me? From this body of death. Now that, that phrase body of death is a very picturesque phrase. Uh, the Roman poet Vig Virgil wrote this story called the Aeneid. A-E-N-I-D, something like that. And he wrote this whole epic tale about the siege of Troy and what happened after the siege of Troy. And he describes the evil king. And what the evil king did is those soldiers who were captured in battle, he would take the soldiers who were killed on the battlefield and he would tie them up as a form of torture and punishment with the dead corpse and the living corpse. And so you had that living man, hand to hand, face to face, tied up with a dead body. And that's how they tortured them. And he writes this, and I quote from that writing, the living and the dead at his command were coupled, face to face, hand to hand, until choked with stench, in loathed embrace, tied the lingering wretches, pined away and died. Literally, the putrefaction from the dead body entered the living man and eventually killed him and took him out. Pretty ugly tale. Now, Paul and Virgil both use that same word. The wretched, the wretched. And you get, get the Apostle Paul, he cries out, oh wretched man that I am, I am chained to this body of death. And that body of death will take me over and consume me with his putrefaction. 
Who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ comes down and he cuts the ropes and he sets us free. An incredible, incredible word picture. Rather than die a slow, putrid death, Paul is rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus cuts the ropes, uh, and this Pharisee prisoner is now set free. Jesus died the death to which the law condemned the apostle Paul, and by the way, every single one of us. And so as a result, it allows Paul and you and I not to live the death style anymore, but to live life by the Spirit of God apart from the law. And that's the essence. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So what's the takeaway? What's the lesson for us this morning? I want you to jot these few things down. Get this last thought, and then we're going to pray together. If Paul's self-portrait teaches us anything, it's that we cannot achieve victory in the arm of the flesh. You'll never be able to do it by keeping the law. The law only amplifies our depravity. You can never, ever do it in your own strength. You see, here's here's the two extremes many believers go to. On the one extreme, they go this way, and they they, uh, push themselves to fatigue to try to be like Jesus. Oh, I gotta be like Jesus, I gotta be like Jesus, I gotta do good, I gotta do good, I gotta do good. And they're, they're pushing to that extreme of trying to be good and be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? And we wear the wristband and we try real hard in our own strength to be like Jesus. The other extreme is simply this. We lower the standard so we can achieve victory. So we drop the law altogether. Doesn't matter what I do, I'm just saved by grace. I can just go out and party all night long, sleep with anybody I want. I'm saved by grace, we're all going to heaven. And so you've got these two radical extremes. Neither one's right. You can never ever work out your salvation on your own strength and your own might and your own power. We are not saved by grace and later sanctified by keeping the law. Paul writes the Galatians, oh foolish Galatians, why do you think God will save you by grace and then you've got to work out your own law, your own salvation by keeping laws and rules and regulations. Grace of God is not half, it's all or nothing. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that will keep us and get us through to heaven. Paul's self-portrait demonstrates that humanity can no more purify itself of sin after salvation than before salvation. Only God can purify the soul. So now what's our duty then? After I'm saved by grace, you say, Pastor, what's the balance? What's, what's my duty after I'm saved by grace? Listen to me, follow me here. It's to know Christ more and grow in intimacy with him. It's about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. My duty, my obligation, my life is to know Jesus more just to know him more, because he's the rescuer. He's the rescuer. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. I'm I'm, I'm moving quickly. Philippians 3, verse number 8. 
What is more, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. It's knowing Jesus and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing and sufferings of becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Listen to me. If you read scripture, if you pray every day, if you meditate, if you fast, uh, it's for the reason of getting to know Jesus better. It's not so you can say, look, God, at how many brownie points I've had. I've read your Bible today. I check off the box. I got my Bible reading done. I've done my duty. Uh, now I get my merit badge. It's not about that. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about knowing him, getting close to him. And so I'll read my Bible. And so I will pray because I want to know God better. If I worship God when I come into the sanctuary and I raise my hands and I praise the Lord, if, if I take communion, if, if I spend time with the believers in fellowship and, and in loving one another, it's all about learning how to love one another as Jesus loved one another. It's about knowing Him. If I feed the poor, if I defend the weak, if I comfort the lonely, if I proclaim the gospel to a hurting world, it's like walking in the sandals of my Lord Jesus Christ. And now I'm walking and living like he walked because that's what he did when he was on the earth. If we endure trials or triumphs, it brings us closer to knowing Jesus Christ and being conformed into his image and his purposes. Spiritual disciplines are not a means to holiness. They are a means of knowing Christ. As we engage in knowing Christ, His Spirit makes us holy. You get it? Let me, let me say that again. Spiritual disciplines are not a means to holiness, then it becomes law. They are a means of knowing Christ Jesus. As we engage in personal piety, fellowship with the believers, if I engage the world in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to know him more intimately, then the Holy Spirit will do only what the Holy Spirit can do. I can't do it. I'm a wretched man. My sore self-portrait is lousy. It's Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's knowing Jesus Christ. It's walking with him, fellowshipping with him, uh, loving Jesus. It's, it's all about Jesus Christ. And instead of the dark side of the moon uh, coming on display or we hide it in the secret closets of our life, I begin to reflect the glory of the sun. You see, a moon has no light of its own. It's only a reflection of the glory of the sun. And as I reflect the glory of the sun, I shine in the radiance of Christ Jesus. Then the more I live in proximity to the sun, the more I will reflect his glory. That's our pursuit today. That's what it's all about. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's grace, not law. 
Hallelujah. Oh, give the Lord praise. This is good. Hallelujah. Thank you, mighty God. Thank you, mighty God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, mighty God. Thank you, mighty God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Listen, there are some here. You've got that death sentence hanging over you right now. You've never invited Jesus Christ to come into your heart and life. I've got good news. He can save you today. He can rescue you this morning. Uh, He will come in and give you a brand new life in Christ Jesus. He'll breathe life into that dead man spiritually and bring it back to life again. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you can have him this morning. You can invite him into your life and say, God, I need you. God, save me. God, I can't save myself. I'm lost without you. So I need your mercy, grace, and forgiveness today. Hallelujah. Father, I pray right now, Holy Spirit of God, sweep through this room this morning. Move, I pray, by your spirit of grace, and we love you and praise you. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.